0: Just like
1: customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining us today on China Corner Office, a podcast powered by Subchina the New York-based news and information platform that helps the West read China between the lines. I'm Chris Marquis, a professor at the Cambridge University Judge Business School, and today's episode features a discussion with serial social entrepreneur and eco-activist, Sona Lee Figueroa. Sona Lee is a native of Hong Kong, and she has started a number of companies in the region. Perhaps the most well-known is Green Queen, the impact media platform she founded 10 years ago. As a media company based in Hong Kong focused on sustainability and social impact, Sona Li's work is at the intersection of many important China topics. One area we discuss is the Chinese government's increasing focus on environmentalism in recent years and its many efforts to meet its ambitious goals. It was quite interesting to hear Sona Li in particular reflect on the lack of growth of the plant-based sector in China. She told me that in 2020, she predicted China would play a more active role in alternative proteins, but that has not yet come to pass. Her rationale for the prediction, which made a lot of sense to me, is that food security is an important element of national security, which is clearly a top priority for the Chinese government. The country has faced a lot of crises as well in its meat supply chain in recent years, such as with the African swine flu, which since 2018 has wiped out an astounding 50% of the country's pig population. This fact, combined with the strong top-down responses to security issues, made China an obvious market for rapid growth of alternative proteins. While the government has not yet focused his attention here yet, Lee does have a number of recommendations for entrepreneurial firms that want to grow this sector in the future. Chinese consumers are known for being picky, and she has a number of suggestions for how companies can better meet their expectations. In addition to the environmental context of Sona Lee's work, we also discuss the changing media environment in Hong Kong and associated challenges. It was particularly interesting to hear her takes on the paid media culture in China and also the increasing potential for self-censorship of the independent media in Hong Kong. Thanks so much for listening, and enjoy the show. Sonali, welcome to China Corner Office.
0: Hi, it's so great to be here. Thanks for having me.
1: Great. Yeah, really excited and looking forward to learning more about sort of sustainability, green issues in China uh, and Asia more generally. And, you know, as a leader of a media outlet focused on these issues and yourself, an entrepreneur uh, in these issues, I know you have a real, you know, good pulse on some of the key you know, challenges, key issues in sustainable production. I'd love to just hear a little bit about what some of those are from your perspective.
0: Absolutely. Well, obviously, there are some challenges um, and obstacles that are general to Asia Pacific. And then there are some that really are specific to each country, right? So, for example, just really quickly, if you talk about the difference between the Chinese market in mainland China versus the Indian market, you are coming from a very different, you've got very different obstacles. So, you know, there are plenty of hundreds of millions, even consumers in mainland China that can afford to pay a little bit more for plant-based meat. That is not the case in India today, right? The disposable incomes are not the same. Even if, even if the, you would both classify you would classify the consumer as middle class in both their buying power is not the same right so an indian consumer may be much more price sensitive than the average middle class chinese consumer so that's a big difference so you wouldn't be able to generalize but right. overall you could definitely say that compared to certain western markets and pacific markets like Australia and New Zealand the conscious consumer persona is not exactly the same across Asia right and and that's to varying degrees true in all the different countries and subregions so the motivation to buy something because you want to protect the planet is quite different and is not developed to the same degree and and within the same degree. So it's just yeah. both from a broad breadth perspective and a depth perspective. It's just, it's a different set of motivations. And for example, animal welfare is not top of mind. Got it. In the same way.
1: Yeah. What's your sense? And I'd, I'd love to dig into some of those like consumer trends uh, as well. But how about as far as some of the like, you know, you I go to China or, you know, different cities in other Asia cities, you know, Hong Kong, Hong Kong less than mainland China, but, you know, there's pollution, a lot of plastic waste, a lot of packaging use. I mean, if you use like one of these, you know, express services, I mean, you have something boxed up and then they come and they add their whole other gigantic cardboard box around it and lots of tape, uh, you know, what's your sense on some of those issues and how, you know, like sustainable things like packaging and production. I know that you're sort of involved in the packaging uh, industry as well.
0: So I'm the co-founder of SourceGreenPackaging.com, which is the first um, wholesale marketplace that is dedicated to sustainable packaging. And I can Mm -hmm. tell you very upfront that we are focusing on the U.S. market first. Um, Our view is that today, while there are pockets of demand across Asian markets – um the may, you know the big demand is not there we are not seeing that consumers are willing to pay more for sustainable packaging and we are definitely not seeing that businesses are willing to pay double or tri- triple to replace single use plastic um right. from fossil fuels with sustainable alternatives um, whereas actually we are seeing that in the US and in Europe
1: yeah and i think another- definitely uh- yeah, and another yeah, thing to that. keep in yeah.
0: mind is regulation. We're not at the same uh, levels and progress in regulation. We do not have very strong anti-plastic waste regulations across Asia. We th- They are changing, uh, China and India being the two biggest markets that are making moves here. Um, right. You know, in India, starting from 2020, Three single-use plastic is going to be hugely curtailed. China has already made a big stink about um, excessive food waste and has mm. recommended that brands t- change 30 to 50% of their packaging. So there's the beginnings of it in the big markets because I think the the waste crises are just so costly to municipal governments and national right. governments. But, you know... There was a Shopify survey done on U.S. customers that came out last year that showed that over 50% of U.S. consumers are willing to pay more for sustainable packaging. I mean, they're actually willing to shoulder that burden, whereas I don't think we could say the same thing for Asian customers. I think Asian customers know it's a problem. And they would love alternatives, but they're not going to pay more for it. They're not going to choose a more expensive product just because it has sustainable packaging. So that's a big difference. So for us, we see the demand will come in three to five years. That's when that Mm -hmm. market will be key for us. But right now, where the demand is from the merchant side, the corporate side, from the end consumer side, it's in the United States and in Europe to, to a degree. I think got it. Yeah. yeah,
1: you know, you mentioned regulation, and you know that there's been some moves. I mean, I remember a number of years ago, you know, there was an effort to try to get those sort of thin plastic bags um, sort of out of out of the market in China. Uh, you know, it's it's you know, but I agree with you that you know, at least when I've been there, I mean, it's just it's amazing how, how plentiful the packaging is, so so to speak. But you know, it. The Chinese government and other governments around the world have recently been focusing a lot on carbon neutrality. And I think that this may play into that. I mean, the plastic is from fossil fuels. What's your sense on either corporate or or government side about these goals?
0: My sense is that carbon neutrality remains very much an energy conversation and an offsetting conversation. What we're seeing here in ESG commitments is like, okay, we're going to offset. But what we're seeing right. in Europe, for example, is offsetting is a scam, you know? So right. <laughs> we're we're at different points in the zeitgeist, um, yeah. you know, where in Europe, companies have had sustainability managers for a long time. Here, that's new. That position is new, right. but it's happening. And they're now is recruiting going on to hire sustainability managers, but are they given the same space as financial managers or operational mm-hmm. managers? No. You know, one of the things I often argue about in a keynote that I do at corporates is big companies should have a chief sustainability officer that is accountable to the CEO. And that is part of the C-suite. That is the only way that sustainability will truly be baked into the entire business rather than what i see a lot in the west and here is sustainability managers that have their like little team and they live in a bit right. of a silo and you know they get trotted out once in a while to share initiatives and do a a little SDG presentation but they're not given the space and the tools and the resources and the responsibility and the budget to really strategically change the fundamental approach to business lines with a sustainability lens.
1: Yeah, makes sense. What's your sense then? I mean, the uh, of the government, the Chinese government's, uh, you know, announcements that they're going to be, you know, peak coal 2030, carbon neutral 2060. There's a lot of plans in the, like the recent five year plan around this. And I mean, ultimately, it's companies that are going to have to actually shoulder a lot of that burden. I mean, through, you know, because they're the, you know, they're, they're the ones who have the factories that are that are polluting. And so, you know, what are you seeing as far as, you know, the sort of early stages of those national initiatives spilling down? um, Or is it still too early to tell?
0: Well, I think there's a lot to unpack there. So first of all, China as as with any other country when it comes to sustainability initiatives and these kind of decarbonization plans it's a lot of creative maths right <laughs> it's a lot of hey so we're going to move the emissions from here to here so that everyone's doing that right and and that again comes back to the offsetting and that's a whole different debate but in terms of whether China can achieve it i mean i would say they must never the Chinese government must never be underestimated. Mm -hmm. They have this power that very few governments have where they can genuinely overnight, I mean, they tomorrow could say, we're never going to use single-use plastic again, and it would have to happen. You know, I don't know anywhere else in the world that they could do that on this scale. Um, So I do believe that if they've set those targets, I mean, one thing you can say about the Chinese government, they're planners you know mm-hmm. much more so than western governments because there isn't this constant change in leadership right. and maybe party interests so right now we we see we've just seen all the plans for 5 years and i believe that they will get there but will they get there by averting a plastic crisis or will they get there by insisting that you know x number of percentage needs to be Green energy, which they can make happen, Mm -hmm. that remains to be seen. And I think it's probably more energy and then offsetting. And but I don't think that Chinese companies necessarily have a huge choice. Right. But in this case, it's a positive thing. I mean, I want, I I wish we could do that for a lot of companies, right? Say, hey, you got to go green tomorrow. Yeah, totally. You have have two years. (laughs) I mean, that would be better for the world. But we can't. Do that. China can do that. So, I actually think we're going to see some pretty great stuff coming from China on this because I think they do commit to certain um, goals and metrics, and they they will find a way to get there.
1: Really interesting. You know, so that then makes me think. You know, it's sort of interesting about predicting what the what they'll do, and I and I totally agree with you. I mean, this is one of the reasons why I've been studying China is that you know this you know energy transition. I mean, could happen there in a really you know interesting and powerful way that it can't happen elsewhere. Certainly, you know, in the U.S. where I spent most of my life. I'd like to ask you one of the reasons I was really interested to talk to you is that you know you had I think had a prediction about you know, China having a much more active role in alternative proteins and food tech. And I would, you know, love to hear a little bit about how you see that market evolving as well.
0: So one of the things that I want to be really upfront about is that I think that I got that prediction quite wrong. Um, I really thought three years ago that if there was one country that was going to onboard the cultivated meat i mean cuz alternative protein is plant based fermented and cultivated fermented is still not really a big subsector in china plant based we can get to that but cultivated meat which is a science backed sector mm-hmm. that requires huge r&d development i i truly thought that china was going to be one of the leaders on that mm-hmm. and we said as much in our um um, launch report. We do a report called the Asia, now the APAC, Alternative Protein Industry Report. And we our first report mm-hmm. came out in January 2020. And in that report, we had picked China and Singapore as mm. two key markets for cultivated meat. And so we turned out to be very right about Singapore. Right. And later that year, they, of course, were the first country in the world to Regulate the commercialization of cultivated meat with the American company, Eat Just. Um, mm-hmm. But China ended up taking a much less active role, a bit of a backseat. My sense now on the ground, just off the record when I speak to founders, is that China is wait, is on a wait and see kind of situation. Mm-hmm. Now there was a big, there was big news because there was last week, China put it in their ag, ag tech plan. Cultivated okay. meat is of interest, novel proteins. So that was seen as like for the first time in three years, the government was actually calling that out. Mm-hmm. And that was very exciting. And that is exciting. But if you look at actually like the support, the financial support, the infrastructure support, support for universities to develop these technologies, it's it's just not really been there. And I was having an interesting discussion with a founder recently this week and he was saying meat is not considered a must have essential in China because my argument was really, well, China likes to control its future and its supply chain and is more and more right. nationalistic, jingoistic, wanting to control, have more China made stuff. There was that huge mess with, um, you know, the, the most, the most consumed meat in China is, is, is pork, and there was a huge mess with African swine flu, which decimated mm-hmm. you know, up to 25% of the Chinese pig population. No, that was the population worldwide of which China right. is a huge consumer. And I, I thought that would spur them on. Now, from a national security point of view, because right. if you are a, a government that plans, which China does, and you are looking at the future, um, there is no way that food security is not on your agenda. And so for me I see cultivated meat and food security as their fates are aligned, right? Right. Because if you can grow your own meat and you don't need to be importing the meat or growing mm-hmm. the animals and having to manage the animals and deal with disease, you are really in control of a huge part of your supply chain. Right. So that's that was my argument. Now when I made that argument, we didn't have we hadn't had covid. So mm. covid hit and I definitely think that that's also part of the reason why China's taken a back seat, right? They had other things to worry about. And then they sort of right. closed off to the world and it was like, well, let's focus on what we need to focus on. And they're cleaning house in other areas. So that's definitely yeah. one of it. But what, what one of these entrepreneurs was telling me earlier this week was meat's just not an essential. I mm. mean, he literally said, well, actually fighter jets are essential, but meat is yeah. not. Now I I pushed back and I said, well, okay, I hear what you're saying, but China's come a long way in terms of quality of life. And a fair number of Chinese people eat meat every day now, even if it's not steak, but you know, they'll eat pork mince in their dumpling or their jianping or what have you. And they're in their soup. Um, So I just, I think that, yes, I see that point, but overall, I still think that I think it's more that they just want to see what the risks are for the industry. And they want to see how will the first country likely to be Mm -hmm. the U S honestly, um, regulate the cult cultivated meat and then label it. And then, and then go through kind of consumer testing and then put it on the market, see what the response Mm -hmm. is. There's a lot of stuff we don't know about cultivated meat. I mean, it's not ready at scale. So I, I can understand that they want to be more on a wait and see approach.
1: Got it. I guess I mean sort of the logic that you laid out about national security. You know, very salient issues around swine flu and other you know food security issues. I mean, you know, it, you, you know, you shouldn't get, you know say that you haven't hit that prediction yet. I think it might be too early to too early to tell. I think particularly given, given that's COVID. What, that's um, what an
0: investor told me that my predictions are just, are just five-year-ons. But my point is yeah. I thought they would act sooner, but I think the pandemic yeah. stopped them. And I also think they want right. to just wait and see. But one thing I will say is that there, there are a lot of tools and resources in China for cultivated meat to become much bigger than it is today. Because there's uh-huh. really less than five startups today. And they're wow, usually spin-offs smart. from universities. But there's plenty of money that wants to go in it. There's plenty of talent. And there's also plenty of appetite for meat that belongs to China, that's grown yeah. for Chinese people, by Chinese people. Right. right? And if you think about the pandemic, it's not just food security. Food security has many different facets, right? There's the climate issue. We are mm-hmm. literally not going to be able to grow some of the crops that we grow today because of c- climate mm-hmm. crisis worsening conditions. So weather patterns and the like right. and arable land issues. And that's across the world, right? So coffee and chocolate are going to be hugely problematic, for example. But two, there's also, well, what happens if there's another pandemic and the borders close overnight and you're not able to import and and even today we're still feeling shocks in the supply chain of globally across many right. different industries including food so if you control your production locally right that's a win and that's why you can see there's huge investment in indoor ag in China it's mm-hmm. starting right? right and there's huge investment in making their farms more efficient and mm-hmm. you know more Climate resilient. So for me, cultivated meat is just—it's another part of that. It's just further down the line.
1: Yeah, no, I, I, I I totally agree. So that's that's um, yeah. Maybe you know, five years from now, we'll have a. Well, we can talk again, and I'm sure your prediction will, will come true. Uh, So I can see though the really a lot of logic why the government is interested in the in this. You know, what about consumers though? I mean, the Chinese consumers. I mean, I think you're right. I mean, I think that meat actually has become you know, something that people have, you know, at least a large, you know, a huge amount of the population does. But, you know, the consumers, Chinese consumers are very, very very picky around what they eat. And, you know, what's your sense about consumer acceptance?
0: Well, I think we need to talk about plant-based meat first, because plant-based meat in China has not been the success story that it is Mm. in the West at all and in right. other parts of asia like even in singapore hong kong thailand to some extent even in india what we're seeing early interest no chinese consumers are very sophisticated and their use their cuisine is very multi-layered and multifaceted and my sense my, for the last year my sense was things are not going well for these plant-based companies the few that are there Mm-hmm. Um, my understanding is so impossible has not made it there because there's still right. an issue with the um, regulatory approval for their heme, which is mm-hmm. the fermented GM yeast that right. gives it that rich iron blood mouthfeel that replicates mm-hmm. meat, which I mean is is quite integral to their product. So that is not yet approved. So they have not entered China. Beyond Meat is in China, but very quiet over the last mm-hmm. year. There was a couple of food service launches and Starbucks and such, but it, it hasn't really gone much beyond that. You've got Omni Foods that's there. So they're obviously the Green Monday offshoot that's started in Hong Kong. They're okay, there. But right. I mean, even then, I think it's challenging. I mm-hmm. think that Chinese consumers are very discerning. And they the, the key thing to remember is that the environmental motivation and the mm-hmm. animal welfare motivation is not quite there yet. That's right. not why they're buying plant-based meat. So mm-hmm. if you if you have a consumer and they're not super pro-animal rights or super worried about the climate crisis, they're not going to forgive low-fidelity products. Right. And I do think that in the West, we do forgive to a certain extent when we're coming from that environmental or ethical buying motivation, right?
1: Right, definitely, yeah.
0: That being said, that's why Impossible Impossible Being So High Fidelity was able to really capture people that didn't care about environment and ethics to the same degree as maybe your activist vegan, right? Right. But I know that I've forced myself to like products or eat them when they weren't amazing because I just didn't want to eat the alternative with the animal. That's not happening in mainland China. So that's one issue. Another issue is, frankly, I just don't think that the work is being done by the brands, both the foreign brands and the local brands, to really segment their market properly and understand Mm. their consumer and lead mm. with the right buying usps. So for me, mm. I would have led with nutrition and health right. and better branding and trendiness, right? I mean, we we know that when something is trendy and well-made and quality and represented by KOLs, we know that Chinese consumers will consume it. Right. But the plant-based meat brands seem to go for very average products that are not super appealing. Their branding is, "Mm." and for example, another thing I would have done is instead of giving them ready to cook products for home, I would have done Mm. a lot more ready to eat like dumplings or spring rolls or, you know, ramen packs where you don't have to, you don't have to figure out how to cook it. It's just inserted instead of the pork or instead of, the chicken, I would have gone that way. Um, yeah, that and I would have sense. focused on health and like the quality of the protein and the nutrition, but that's not really what was done. Mm-hmm. And it just doesn't seem like the industry is taking off as much as everyone had hoped it would. This is just my view.
1: Yeah. That's, 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 I think, you know, makes you know, my exposure to, yeah, Chinese consumers in these issues, you know, very consistent, uh, with yours and those recommendations you have, I think are, you know, I hadn't thought about those, but very spot on. And hopefully maybe folks from some of these com- companies like beyond or, or, um, or whomever else. I mean, I, I don't know what beyond is selling in China, but I can imagine like their Italian sausages, um, which they're very popular in the U S for people that aren't even vegan because they actually taste very good, you know, may not go over well, uh, in China.
0: Yep. And I think we we mustn't be lazy, right? And we must adapt our marketing, our branding, and our product offering to every market. And in China, it's not just one market; there are sub-markets.
1: Many, many markets. Yeah, I would like to switch gears a little bit. I mean, it's been really interesting to hear all of this insight into you know sustainability, plant-based packaging, you know, carbon neutrality. But you're a real pioneer in this. I think even globally, let alone in Asia. Uh, you know, in Hong Kong and, and China. Uh, how did you get into this uh, interest?
0: I feel like my story is a little bit classic because in, in the beginning, I was more in the health and wellness world. And I have this classic story of I was sick. No one oh. could figure out what was wrong with me. I had these health issues. They weren't killing me, but they were making my life unpleasant and painful. And um, the doctors weren't listening to me. I definitely feel I experienced what I call medical misogyny. And to this day, I definitely do not have a strong um, trust in doctors, even though I think, you know, they do amazing work. And, you know, especially I love surgeons and all that. But in terms of like regular doctors, I think not so good at diseases that you can't just medicate. Mm -hmm. And I was misdiagnosed with a few things. But in, in, in the end, I've turned out to have A couple of hormonal disorders that have made life Mm. painful for me, made things difficult. And it took many, thanks. Um, It took many years to figure out what those were. And it was right around when Google came along and you could actually do your own research on the internet, which I mean, I would have been that kid with like Googling everything if I'd had it. But I started to do my own research. And the more I researched, the more I realized that the way that I was living and what I was eating had was having an impact on my symptoms and probably yeah. had caused some of this to an extent. So a lot of hormonal disorders could be traced back to the fact that yeah. I spent a lot of my childhood consuming chicken beef and milk from the US that was heavily mm-hmm. um filled with hormones and antibiotics and my mom right. thought she was doing the best thing by buying the imported american meat and oh, dairy so you, were, you weren't in the US you were, you were I was in Hong, Hong Kong. Kong. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And we you know my mom thought she was buying the the better thing and at the time that's what was available and so Right, she, You know, we didn't have access to information. She didn't know any of this. She didn't know there were hormones in the meat. She didn't want to be, because my mom was is very much like a eat at home, everything homemade type of person. So it's not like I grew up eating like food from a packet at all, but it's just the raw ingredients were filled with hormones and antibiotics, which were non-declared. And um, definitely, you know, my mom grew up in India. So she definitely fed fed me a lot of meat. I think felt like meat was key to, you know, being healthy and protein, all of that kind of what I think today is brainwashing um, had happened to her. Right. And she was, she was thinking, well, we've managed to, you know, build up our, we have, we can buy meat every day and eat it at every meal. And that's kind of a luxury and so on and so forth. Um, And so I just went down a rabbit hole. And I, I started looking at what I was eating. And then I started looking at how my food was grown or produced or or caught. And then I started understanding about soil depletion and waterway pollution and toxicity because of uh, plastics that were leaching into my food prep or what have you. And, and that's just, it snowballed from there. And then I totally changed my life overnight. I changed what I was eating, what I was buying, what products I was using in the shower, what, you know, the paint on my walls, I was freaking out about the VOCs and et cetera, wow. et cetera. And I stopped all carpeting in any of my housing. You know, I just really tried to detoxify my life and eventually felt like maybe there were people out there that needed the resources I was accumulating. Mm-hmm. And I'd always been, and still am someone that people call for what restaurant should I go to, or where should I stay, okay. or like I'm just I'm like I love to share, you know, information and 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 resources and suggestions, and so put it up on a website. Did not know wow. how to manage a website. Did not know that I was starting any kind of media company. Um, looking back, it makes sense because when I was an eight-year-old, I started my own magazine. I used to ask my my mom had a company and she would print, <laughs> she would photocopy the. I would write it out in, in felt tip pen on A4 paper and staple it, and then she would photocopy it and I would distribute it in school. And then I started another magazine that I was printing in color from a computer when I was sixteen, and I wrote for my school paper. So it makes sense, but uh-huh. I didn't connect those dots till later. And then That's we went from small Hong Kong blog. That immediately got a readership because clearly there were other people like me to Mm -hmm. um, a more kind of uh, well known kind of health and wellness and sustainable food um, media. Um, Because I basically realized very early on I didn't want it to be a blog. I really wanted to kind of be more like a media where I was providing information, but it wasn't just all about me. Um, Mm -hmm. I had, I mean, just to be very clear, I'd never planned to become any kind of media personality. I didn't even put my name or my photo on green queen for four years.
1: Wow. And I
0: had to really be coaxed into it because I was getting speaking engagements. Mm -hmm. And I, I mean, I still don't even have my own Instagram. So it it really wasn't, I wasn't trying to become an influencer. I was really just trying to share information. Um, And I did feel like there was a gap in the market for this kind of information. And we were absolutely the first in Asia to write about all this stuff. And we yeah. were the first to, to we were definitely the first media to write about alternative protein back in 2016. I was running mm-hmm. another business which was in organic foods supply chain and I was going to all yeah. these food shows and I was discovering the future of food and I was tasting right. things like Beyond and going, something's different here. And then eventually decided that I wanted to focus more on this kind of future of food and wanted to give Asia a voice because a lot of the media is very Western-centric, very Mm -hmm. US-centric and then EU-centric and UK-centric. And it just kind of grew from there. And then about three years ago, decided I was just going to go for it and be global and have a more global readership. Um, And about five years ago, we stopped reporting on animal products. Mm. Because before that, I was kind of living under this illusion that there's humane meat and sustainable seafood and organic dairy. And then the more I read and the more I got into the research and I looked at the carbon reports from the UN, I just felt like it was completely I couldn't say that I was green queen and sustainable and health focused and then be promoting industrial meat and dairy in any way shape or form and I'd given up seafood ages before because it's just mired in slavery
1: yeah wow interesting thank you for sharing that that's and it's interesting to hear that last part about you know how you know the standards that you're keeping in your in your coverage and I'm you know a lot of times nowadays you know there's you know a lot of conflict of interest underlying media reporting you know we're all in our bubbles of extremism and in some ways uh, and uh, how do you think about that, particularly vis-a-vis mainland China, which has a, is increasingly strong, you know, influence on the media landscape in in Hong Kong. I mean, how, you know, how, how do you balance both your impartiality, covering things you're passionate about, with sort of a looming influence of China and just trying to be fair and impartial? I guess.
0: Well, I think it's all in your masthead and your and kind of what you what you say to the world that you're doing. So I'm very, very, very upfront. About seven years ago, we we kind of put out this mission, said we are an impact media. So we are trying to some degree to change people's minds about climate change and what they can do about it. So Mm -hmm. I'm not hiding from that. So everything that we publish is put through that lens. So we're not just a regular media. I'm not going to report on, you know, microchips and, you know, or a new phone or, um, you know, construction. I'm, I'm really going to look at everything through the lens of, am I informing you about the climate crisis? Am I inspiring you with, with stories of entrepreneurs and companies and solutions and NGOs that are working to change it? And am I empowering you by offering you resources and solutions that you yourself can put into action if you want to. Mm -hmm. So, I have an agenda and I think my issue is that most media does not cop to their agenda.
1: Got it. Yeah.
0: Um, even news media has an agenda, right? I mean, let's look at the U S there's the liberal news media and the, and the conservative news media, but they all like to say that they're completely unbiased. But I mean, I don't know that anybody even really believes that anymore. And I mean, you can look at what's happening with even CNN. Um, and you can see that we've lost trust in what is supposed to, you know, and I think there used to be kind of these middle medias like a PBS, but that's just gone out the window. And even the BBC in the UK is, you know, in my view, much more aligned with the Tories and the Conservative Party than it is with mm. the left. So I don't think they're unbiased either. Right. Um, do I think everybody knows that media is completely biased? No. I think some people like to believe that there's still unbiased media, but at the end of the day, everyone's got an agenda, even mm-hmm. the non-biased media, right? Right. V- vegan activist media's have an agenda. They want you to become vegan. You know. Um, wellness media's have an agenda. Uh, f- you know, gender-specific. Med- like every media has is creating a space for a community of people mm-hmm. that buy into certain beliefs. And I don't think that there's necessarily something wrong with that. I mean, I think social media tapped into this thing that was missing, Mm -hmm. right? But it's how things are framed. So I think that media that presents itself as unbiased news media that's just reporting on happenings in the world should be held to different standards than an impact media that is clearly open about pushing their agenda of sustainability. Right. Um, I also think that the bigger your platform, the more of a responsibility you have. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm sure you know that there's a lot going on right now with Spotify and Joe Rogan and these conversations. Oh, yeah. And so this is all happening right now. And it's, I'm right. sorry if you have an audience of 11 million people, you owe <laughs> The world more than if only one person, if you're only your mom listens to your podcast, you know, that's not the same thing. And I I don't want to pretend that it is. And I think one thing that I that that is going wrong is that we are giving everybody the same equivalency.
1: Hmm.
0: And for me, it's like, no, a scientist is an expert. Someone who woke up one day and decided they don't believe in science is not equivalent to that scientist as an expert. Yeah. And so gotcha. that person should come with a warning, and their message should come with a warning. But that's that's my view. And I understand, mm-hmm. you know, I completely believe that everyone is free to believe whatever they want, but we have, you know, we've lost the sight of common facts. And I think in Asia it's it's almost even it's beyond that because we don't even have strong truth in advertising laws here. Mm -hmm. So here the problem is less extreme political views that are damaging. It's much more commercial agendas that are hidden.
1: Oh, that's interesting.
0: There's too much um, essentially advertorial across Asia that is not flagged as such. And consumers in Asia might guess is that they have no idea how to identify an uh, uh, advertorial versus editorial. And I have flagged hmm. this and I've done, te- I've done, you know, off, I've sort of done anecdotal tests. I'll speak to it. And I have companies that call me and they're like, well, we want to pay for editorial. And I'll say, well, you <laughs> can't pay for editorial by definition. Right. It's yeah, editorial. Yeah. And they're like, well, how much is it? And I'm like, no, 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 it's an advertorial. It's sponsored content. And they're like, no, no, but we don't want that. We want you to write an article and we'll pay you for it as editorial. So, I mean, I have that conversation at least five times a year, right? Yeah. And then I'll test out readers and I'll say, you know, that media was paid for that content. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: And they'll just have no idea. And they'll say, what? I thought that was just, they liked them. That's why they wrote about them. And so mm. we have different issues in Asia. And, and, and yeah, a big that, issue is this like, lack of truth in advertising. And that's something I've had to fight against because we've always been really upfront. And 98% of our content is editorial. I'm very, right. very strict. I almost, there are so many clients I've said no to because they don't follow our mission or ethos. Like, I'm not going to promote yeah. you financial services. Right. But I could make a yeah. lot of money if I did.
1: Yeah, no, that's that's really interesting because you know I've have a decent amount of experience with media in China, you know, you know, various newspapers, magazines, and I, you know, given growing up in the West and 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 in have you know having sort of truth and advertising laws you know, sort of deep in my bones, I guess, and and sort of you know independent media, you know, really surprised at how you know. I co-opted in some ways, the the sort of journalist and and business end of the media is, but I, I didn't realize that extended beyond China to to Asia more generally. I thought it was just the yeah. sort of unique system um, in China. And, so,
0: and I'm not sure people have too much of a problem with it. Uh, and I'm sure I'm if you're not the sure elite, you was, don't. Well, no, even consumers, yeah, beca- yeah, because I'm I'm yeah. not sure they're aware, and it I'm also not sure that media is respected in the same way here.
1: Hmm. Yeah.
0: In India, I think there was a very strong kind of freedom of the press um, and and respect for journalists kind of culture and ethos, although that is under attack. That's mm-hmm. a different conversation. But I think in the rest of Asia, I just don't get the, like, I don't think parents are like, yay, you're going to become a journalist. In right. fact, I have friends that are journalists. One of them was in China until very recently, and her parents consider her an absolute failure. And this yeah, is someone so who went to Columbia Business School, uh, Journalism, School of Journalism, is an outstanding reporter, very respected in her field, knows what she's doing. And she's not a doctor. She's not a lawyer.
1: Right. And I
0: can tell you that I myself, when I said I was leaving finance to start an organic Wholesale platform, and then Green Queen. I became known for Green Queen. I think people thought I was just loopy. (laughs) Like it's just not respected in the same way. So if it's not respected, then it's also not really put under the microscope that much.
1: Right. Yeah. No. That's that's interesting insight. Uh, I'd like to you know sort of the last topic of conversation I have is you know, in regards to sort of Hong Kong and China relations. And, you know, I guess your media is, you know, you know, you're very clear about what the what the focus is and might not be something that's as controversial as maybe mm-hmm. like Apple Daily or, or something. Uh, but I'd be interested to hear, you know, how you've experienced the changing media environment in Hong Kong over the last number of years.
0: So it's interesting. I was on the beach yesterday with a friend who's an artist and we mm-hmm. were talking about censorship and she said something that really resonated with me because I realized I was guilty of it. And she said, the scariest part of the censorship is not the censorship from the government, but the self censorship,
1: right? She was talking yeah. about
0: artists and I realized oh, I right. have self censor c- censored. I will not, just this week I changed wording to make sure Mm -hmm. that I wasn't alluding to any kind of political sensitivity because it wasn't relevant to the story, but I just didn't even want to be flagged. Mm
1: -hmm. And I
0: guess my view is, well, there's, my mission is different. It's climate crisis fighting. So I want to keep being able to do that. And if, I I can change the wording on a sentence and I can keep doing that, then I'm justifying that to myself. But another thing that I did is um, last year, um, no, more than a year ago, before NSL came in, we did a story on H&M and the cotton in Xinjiang. And, you know, I don't know that I would run the exact same story today. I mean, it's still there on the website. But... That's where we have more. I think our danger is more on the ethical, the human rights side of things, because we do write about right. sustainable fashion and sustainable production, and 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 human rights comes into that because of labor rights. So mm. the food part is is less of an issue, right? right. Um, but I don't want to, you know, I don't want to misrepresent. Green Queen, I mean, I don't think we're top of mind for any uh, government official, um, but you, but you know, you never know.
1: Exactly. I mean, just one thing has to happen. I mean, some article spreads, and then you, you know, uh, who knows what what will happen? But me, yeah, you know. And I've definitely had people someone, reach out and yeah. say,
0: "You need to be careful." Okay. So hmm. not not like a threat, but just people who like like my friends or, or you know bienveillant people who want wish me well and are like, just be careful or don't. Right put that in writing or maybe don't yeah. cover this. So I have self-centered a few times, not a lot, just yeah. a handful, but there you go. And it, when my yeah. friend yesterday said, it's actually the self-center censure that's the scariest part. I, it really made me think I had not, but I mean, I don't, we all self-censor now.
1: Sure. Yeah. I mean, we, that's, you know, I mean, people, you, you choose how you present yourself and now there's this other sort of shadow that you know you just you know maybe don't want to mention something that yeah like you're saying that might actually impede your mission uh in the long run
0: but overall sustainability is not where the issue is right like i think it's a semi-neutral ground for the government i I think it's mostly seen in a positive light that we're bringing attention to sustainability
1: yeah just just to close. Do you have any sort of predictions in this space over the next couple of years sort of where, where things will be headed?
0: You know, I think I, I did a I did a whole, um, I do my annual predictions, so I okay. did them, but they were more global in scope. I, I had about how many did I have 12 this year for alternative protein? Um, what I think is really uh, important, is localization and regionalization. And it Mm -hmm. goes back to what we discussed with plant-based meat in China. Um, And I I do want to say, you know, you did ask me, what do I think cultivated meat in China will be like in terms of the consumer acceptance? And we didn't really cover Mm -hmm. that, but I, I don't think we know yet because there's nothing there. But what's really interesting is early um, surveys show that Indian and Chinese consumers are actually more open to cultivated meat than Western consumers. Oh, they, yeah, they have much less of the ick factor, most likely because they are not, they, they didn't grow up with this image of like a happy black and white cow in a field, you know, being, mm-hmm. you, you know what I mean? That's not right. the imagery and the, the kind of myths that they are given. So they're, yeah. they're not as committed to that. So they really do understand the, the safety side of things, the health side of things. I think that for me, if I were in charge of building out products for, for, the, for the Asian region and for China, I would really focus a lot more on regionalization of taste, mm-hmm. um, nutrition, and health oh. as, as the leading. And if we have to use health as the Trojan horse to get in the climate fighting solutions, I'm up for it.
1: (laughs) Health is important too. I mean, yeah, yeah.
0: let's not like, let's understand our consumer and our markets motivations and let's give people things that are good that they want in a format they understand and engage with. I just, I don't know why it only, you know, yes, in the West, there is this, Phenomenon that has happened where people are choosing products just for the planet, but mm-hmm. that's maybe not going to happen the same way. Let's not assume that right. everything that's happening in the West is going to happen in Asia, and let's also be very ready for Asia to be a leader in many of these areas, if not, you know, all of them.
1: Great. Well, thank uh, you. Know, interesting way to end uh, the podcast. Just want to thank you so much, Sonali, for your for joining us here on China Corner Office.